Are you wondering how you can learn more about food? Well, you're in the right place. This is the Chakula Podcast, brought to you by the Root to Food Initiative, a show that celebrates authentic Kenyan dishes and serves you hot conversations about food in Kenya from an economic, social, and political lens. Semanasi kwenye social media, at Root to Food on Instagram, at Root to Food on Twitter, and Root to Food on Facebook. And now, here's your host, Felistas Mwalia. Hi guys, and welcome to this episode of the Chakula Podcast. On the last episode, we had a fantastic discussion with Christine Mungai on the current state of small-scale farmers in Kenya. And some of the key takeaways from the conversation is the need to evaluate the role of private sector in agricultural development. It was clear from the discussion, in as much as they equally benefit small-scale farmers, there are also loopholes that could be easily manipulated by the private sector. On this episode, I'll be joined by Wangui Kamunji, who is a retriever and bearer of indigenous African lifeways, recenter in Africa, earth and ancestrality, in her offerings to the world. She works as an independent researcher, dancer, storyteller and facilitator of regenerative presence, and feature rooted in indigenous African ways of being, knowing and doing. She grew up in Ongata, Rongai, Kenya. Karibu sana Wangoi. Asante. It's a pleasure to have you on this episode. Perhaps you could start off by telling us a bit of your journey to where you are today and what does it mean to be a retriever and a bearer of African lifeways? Um, so that piece in, in how I describe myself as a retriever and bearer of indigenous lifeways, of African lifeways, mm-hmm. comes directly from my understanding of what my life purpose is. Mm-hmm as I read it from my name, Wangoi. And what I take that to mean is, or how I see that in my life is that my work is always involving, you know, the, it's almost the embodiment of the Akan Sankofa proverb. It is not wrong to go back and fetch that which you forgot. So my research, my dance, my my interests as a whole, my writing, uh, focus on interrogating indigenous knowledge, indigenous African knowledge and practices and thinking through, you know, how, how is it that these knowledges came to be forgotten, at least in an urban context yeah. um, and in a rapidly urbanizing context in, in this continent. Mm-hmm. And how is it that we can retrieve these knowledges, these practices, bring them to today, reimagine them, reconnect to them and create something that is both new and old that can heal the trauma of the past and and help us to create something that is regenerative for for now and for the future. Something that will not only survive all of the changes that are coming, but actually thrive so that we all thrive in ways that, you know, on this continent, we haven't been thriving Mm -hmm. all together as a people for a long time. So my work is focused around that. So that's how I see that um, description of being a retriever and a bearer of indigenous life ways. It seems you're very passionate about the indigenous ways. Moving on to the next question. Yes, the well-known ecofeminist Vandana Shiva believes that food is where we begin. Your work reflects a similar philosophy. Can you explain a little bit why the discourse about food is so important to you as a person and to us? 
So for me, food means a lot of things. Uh, my history with food, I learned to cook um, when I was very far away from home. Um, and I, it was a journey of like experimenting, making mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was when my inquiry into indigenous foods, indigenous ingredients began. Yeah. And also inquiring into indigenous ingredients and also how people beyond, you know, Kenyans mm-hmm. used or included, ate um, what I considered indigenous or local ingredients um, in Kenya. Mm-hmm. And in that way, it was a period of transition for me and cooking and interacting with these ingredients and, you know, learning to cook recipes, all of that kind of opened a portal. Sorry to interrupt. Yes. Maybe you can tell us some of those indigenous ingredients that you're using. Okay. Yeah. I'll give an actual example. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I began to experiment with, uh, because I could find it at the time I was studying in the U.S., because I could find it um, and I actually found it in a Korean shop, was what we call arrowroots, doma. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. And, you know, other people call it taro. And at the time, I remember thinking to myself, you know, how come the only way that I know to eat doma is boiled yeah. with tea in the morning, mm-hmm. full stop. You know, there's nothing else yeah. almost. Uh-huh. Um, at least there, were, there had been nothing else in my own history. And finding doma in a Korean market, I was like, oh, okay, so other people eat these things as well. I wonder how they eat them. And at the time, actually, I had a Korean friend and she showed me how to make desserts, a sweet, a sweet food, which was a mixture of doma and sticky rice and coconut milk and sugar. Interesting. <laughs> and it was really nice. And I was like, oh, okay, so you can do more things with these yeah, okay. um, ingredients that, you know, I had kind of only known in one, through one way only. And that began this inquiry into how come certain knowledges kind of became frozen almost? Mm-hmm. How come we did not innovate? We did not continue to innovate on our indigenous knowledges our indigenous foods, our indigenous practices. Why is it that, you know, for the past, I don't know, 60 years, Ndoma has been, you know, most people just know it for as... breakfast. You boil it, you eat it with tea for yeah. breakfast, that's it. <laughs> and to be honest, that is how I think of also many other indigenous innovations, many mm-hmm. other kind of innovations or knowledges that existed before colonialism yeah. that... It kind of left them as they were, you know, it, colonialism kind of cut off our ability to continue to innovate. I think of food as like all of the relationships that both create and destroy the world, mm-hmm. they meet and they exist in food. So a lot of the systems that we think of as systems of oppression today, mm-hmm. for example, slavery, colonialism, those are like two major ones and and they're tied up with capitalism yeah food was a strong component of those you know people yeah. were, africans were being enslaved to go farm yeah to go farm cotton to go farm sugar to go farm rice and um we actually did be ranchers yeah we actually did an episode on how food played a major role in colonization 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So food is is integral or has been integral to creating the systems that today we we think of as oppressive systems. Mm-hmm. And even though we don't recognize food to, in the present moment as being such a huge factor, mm-hmm. it still has played that history that you know the inequalities that we see today were in part created by relationships, certain systemic relationships mm-hmm. to food. So in in that sense also I I see food you know on the broader political mm-hmm. scale so there's this individual or personal let me say not individual this yeah. personal relationship that I have built with food mm-hmm. um and that really food has built with me and then there's this like broadening of the scope to understand that there's a lot that is tied to the histories of food that has created the systems of inequality that we see today at the same time like i said the relationships all of the relationships that create and or destroy the world meet an existing food i think a lot of um, i'll use this word even though it's not probably the best mm-hmm. word to use but a lot of our salvation will also come from our interactions with food so at the moment my research focuses on regeneration mm-hmm. which is a question of how do we heal the colonial traumas of the past and the present and how do we create new realities both for the present and for the future and one of my interests is to actually interrogate how food sovereignty or just different relationships to food can be a critical piece of this how food sovereignty practices can have the potential to change how we how we think of decision making for example that we take into account mm-hmm. the earth as part of our decision making how we think of justice that you know um regenerative justice takes into account both healing and creating as fundamental components and one of the places where it's so easy to see um regenerative justice practices is when you are interacting with food when you're interacting with the earth um yeah. because the earth has such tremendous capacity to heal yeah and how do we educate our children differently not just our children we probably all need some form of reeducation yeah. <laughs> but how do we think of education differently and i think food sovereignty practices again have a lot to teach us within that maybe you can explain to the listeners what food sovereignty means yeah and some of the practices to it food sovereignty for me means people who people regaining control mm-hmm. as well as reclaiming relationship mm-hmm. with food in terms of how we nurture food how we grow food um and food broadly understood not just agriculture or you know farming but also all systems of food or all all food ways so this includes pastoralism this includes foraging or otherwise hunting and gathering this includes fishing as well food sovereignty to mean our ability to direct and to create the relationships that we have with food outside of the boundaries of the nation state or the boundaries of the market and money what are the relationships that we cultivate with earth and with food and with each other so that we can exchange whatever we have produced And so some of these food sovereignty practices that I am interested in at the moment or, or coming to know um are for example what I call 
seed rematriation and rematriation is the the female version <laughs> the female version of the word repatriation ah. um because it acknowledges uh-huh. that seed in indigenous many indigenous communities used to be the province of women used to be the responsibility of women mm-hmm. and so women doing the work of re- remembering and finding where they had lost old seeds indigenous seeds heirloom seeds and rekindling a relationship with those seeds so for example in getting to know the work of women in in groups in Taraka in central Kenya and their work to come back to especially millet for example yeah. mm-hmm. because millet is indigenous to this part of Africa yeah palm millet and finger millet and their work to find not only just like one seed of millet one variety mm-hmm. of millet mm-hmm. but you know a diverse range i think when i spoke with this lovely woman kaguna she showed me maybe about five different varieties of palm millet and she gives me the names of each of them you know this one is called this this one is called this this one is called this this one has these properties this one has those properties this one we use for this time this one we plant for this reason wow. that other one and, and also then how do you use these seeds yeah. because once you're growing those seeds once you found them then there's the, the next step of also how you process those seeds and i think this is also a critical component of mm-hmm. food sovereignty so it's not just you know growing food it's also what do you do with the food once you have it how do you share it what how do you process it and that's you know the skills there there's also community there there's relationships that you have to build to to be able to share you know what to, for me to share what I've produced with you there's a question of relationship what relationships do we have and so them also remembering the rituals that these seeds were critical for and some of these rituals you can't swap you can't say okay well we don't have this seed so we'll okay i think in essence if you get to the essence of it you probably can but <laughs> the rituals as they exist at the moment they have a critical component of including certain seeds and certain foods so there's a porridge that's made out of palm millet for example mm-hmm. that is needed when certain rituals certain cleansing rituals certain blessing rituals are done in Taraka community so just that one aspect of wait what were the seeds we used to grow How come we don't grow them anymore? Yeah. Where can we go to find these seeds? Who can we ask? That, you know, questioning and that mm-hmm. beginning to find to look for those seeds creates an ecosystem where rituals can come back um when people can appreciate their value. Society can be strengthened, community can be strengthened because we are coming together to do this either these rituals or this work together. Knowledge is also re-strengthened because yeah. I have to then remember Okay these seeds are called this when you plant it it looks like this or you need to plant it at a certain time once you harvest it this is how you ensure that it doesn't get decimated by mm-hmm. all the weevils in the world yeah. <laughs> and also how you process it into food that is nutritious so things like in a lot of african food traditions mm-hmm. a big taste component is the sour taste 
which mm -hmm. we often get from fermentation. And what fermentation does is it unlocks nutrients from a lot of foods. So millets, for example, when you ferment them, mm -hmm. you get a lot more of the nutrition from them than if you don't ferment them. And that is a skill that is, you know, that is indigenous knowledge that, you know, may maybe many of us have lost. And yeah. we only remember that, okay, we like the taste of, of sour porridge, for example, mm -hmm. which is why you can go to the supermarket and buy Wimbindimu. Yeah. <laughs> you can buy Wimbindimu, yeah. uh -huh. but Wimbindimu is has had like citric acid added to it. That's like an industrial product. And so it's it, the taste will be there, the sourness will yeah. be there, but the nutrition is not there. So if we lose, you know, that process, yeah. that knowledge of how to process food in that way, we are also declining our nutrition levels, yeah? So that's one example. Mm -hmm. Sorry to cut you short, you've talked so much about that food, food is supposed to nourish us. And today on the mm -hmm. 16th of October, the world celebrates the World Food Day. And the theme of this year's celebration is Grow, Nourish, Sustain, recognizing that our actions are our future. What food movements do you believe in and promote? Mm, so the ones that I that are in, very inspiring for me are the ones that recognize that food is holistic. Mm -hmm. um, the movements that recognize that food is holistic. So whether whether they are actual just food movements, so for example, peasant movements like La Via Campesina and their local chapters. So I think the Kenya Peasants League, and I was I got to know the Mviwata. I remember the full version of Mviwata is, is the Tanzanian chapter of La Via Campesina. So whether it's those ones which recognize that fierce food is the, is the, is the center mm -hmm. of, of the movement. At the same time, however, they are also building out like, okay, how do we include education? How do we include political power building, building, enhancing the capacity of our members? And, and then movements that are not necessarily, you know, food movements. At least if we look at them, we wouldn't think they're food movements. And one example is a movement um, whose slogan was yes to life, no to mining. Um, and this one was in Pondoland in South Africa. And it was a resistance to mining. And there was like this Australian mining company mm -hmm. that was going to come in and like, I don't know, destroy a certain section of this community. And within their plan for, okay, we don't want the mining. What are we saying yes to? We're saying yes to life. Within that plan, there was a critical component of agroecology. Mm -hmm. So movements like these that either they are food centric and they also contain a lot of other components because they recognize that, you know, life is holistic yeah. or movements are not necessarily like food centric, but also recognize that food is critical. I think the example I was just giving about seed rematriation is another example yeah. of that. Mm -hmm. There's like food there and then there's also the community's knowledge and history, spirituality, respect for elders, education, because they also include a component of having elders interact with young younger children in schools. And that way, restoring respect and value to elders who, in our societies today, sometimes it feels like they're useless, which is hard to say. Yeah. <laughs> um, so movements like these um, are really inspiring for me. And then one last example is movements in urban centers mm -hmm. that are reclaiming land, especially in impoverished areas of the city. 
where they're, they're reclaiming land to begin to grow food. And some of it has been spurred by especially COVID because food food has become more difficult to access because people lose jobs and, mm-hmm. and have lost jobs and so on. So movements are such as those and some of them are um, spearheaded by the social justice centers in Nairobi. You mentioned about agroecology. How mm-hmm. is it different from the current form of farming? What is this agroecology? So just a quick definition, agroecology combines agriculture and mm-hmm. ecology into one mm-hmm. um, word to talk about a form of agricultural practice mm-hmm. that reads or is in line with how nature works and how ecologies function. So rather than working against ecology, rather than working against nature, mm-hmm. we work with nature, we learn from nature. And essentially it's like a new name for old practices. Because if you look at, you know, older practices, yeah. they were fundamentally agroecological. Yeah. It's only when industrial forms of agriculture mm-hmm. became more and more common that you know it has become necessary to actually say okay no this is agroecology it's different from industrial agriculture which is fundamentally about fighting nature killing off pests and you know spraying this and spraying that the drive to produce the maximum the most the most the most and that is only the only me- measure of success yeah. monocultures for mm-hmm. example whereas agroecology reads from nature nature and sees okay nature is varied nature is diverse nature works in seasonalities it's not just like produce 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 all the time mm-hmm. nature has different ecological zones so there's parts of nature that are dry parts of nature that are wet and different things do better in those different places so how do we work how do we align our ways of producing food with what is already existent in nature and what needs to change in our current food system to deliver nourishment to the earth and to people both now and in the long term so mm-hmm. i will only offer some thoughts yeah it's okay. um, i don't that's know allowed. if I, 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 <laughs> that's allowed <Yes. laughs> i think one thing that needs to change well i'll start here even the notion of a food system mm-hmm. the system i that word is so difficult to say <laughs> the systematization uh-huh. of food that it breeds in us and an approach to food that is inherently kind of capitalistic and colonial that's like food is dead you know food is just resources for us to extract for us to produce more mm-hmm. of the land is dead and it's it strips dignity from the earth it strips dignity from food it strips dignity from the people who grow food which is why food can be one of the cheapest things to buy with money yet we all need food to live yeah so i think a shift from only thinking of food as within a system of producing extracting producing more mm-hmm. buying selling and towards thinking of food as relationship as knowledge i think is one of the things i would i would offer as a suggestion another thing is that there's an anonymity 
mm-hmm. within the food system as it is today mm-hmm. where we don't know where the food is coming from we don't know the source yeah we don't know who has grown it we don't know what processes have gone into growing this food or producing whatever it is mm-hmm. there's an anonymity also of the earth so you get your thing that is in a package and you almost don't recognize that it came from the land yeah um, there's also an anonymity to what we are doing to the earth as we produce that food in those ways that we don't even know how it's being produced and there's also an anonymity within the histories of food so we don't even know you know what food histories are globally can we blame it on like the current can we can we blame it on the current system i think the the system as a system mm-hmm. is created to create anonymity because if you knew all of these things yeah. you will divest from that system you would not want to be a part of that system but the anonymity is there to create convenience because once it's convenient mm-hmm. once i don't have to think about you know why are my pineapples coming from uganda as opposed to kenya or yeah. why am i buying i don't know you know when i stop thinking about those things when i don't have to think about those yeah. things then i can more easily be complicit in the oppression or in the um inequalities that are inherent to the food system as it stands to the industrial food system as it stands then i don't have to think about oh you know i buy sorghum for example mm-hmm. at 59 shillings a kilo mm-hmm. you know the anonymity within that can make me think oh great it's so cheap Yeah. But if I shift to relationship as opposed to system and if I want to to you know un- uncover the anonymity then I will ask how come this sorghum is so cheap yeah. what does it mean for me to be able to buy sorghum at 59 shillings a kilo for the person who's growing that sorghum are they growing it in a in a, let me let me change that sentence is the process within which they're growing it a process that allows them to have dignity as a human being is it a process that allows the earth to also have dignity so those are the the questions that you can begin to ask when you uncover the lie of anonymity which of course the system doesn't want you to ask those questions so the the fact of it being a system makes it enclosed mm-hmm. and reinforces that anonymity the other thing i might add is this also getting away from from a view of food that is separate from the rest of life. Mm-hmm. Food is critical to all of life and like I said, I think everything meets in food. Politics, culture, economics, inequality, social processes, gender dynamics, in everything meets in food. And if we can come to food and begin to ask all of those questions i think food can can help us to open and see how everything is actually connected so that we are not fighting fights that are that are kind of disparate or you know me in my corner you in your corner yeah. the other person in their corner food can bring us together so that we actually see wait the roots of all the problems that we are wanting to to change are the same COVID-19 has exposed the structural weaknesses in our global food systems. What are some of the main learnings we can take from the crisis and what opportunities are there for a deeper consciousness and care for food and nature? <laughs> These are all not small questions. Um again just mm-hmm. some some offerings. Mm-hmm. Um I think 
one of the things that COVID has has shown us is the truth of our interdependence, mm-hmm. as well as exposed the ways in which our sovereignty has been robbed mm-hmm. over the years in countless ways. And I say sovereignty mm-hmm. to mean individual and community sovereignty. And I say sovereignty to also mean our capacity, our ability to act, our ability to do things according to what we determine is important or has value. So far, we have been doing what other people have directed us to do. Either the state says, okay, you should do this, or industry says, or the market says, you have to live in this way, you have to work to get money, and money is the the most important thing. Whereas at the moment, I think what COVID has exposed, one of the things at least, Mm -hmm. is that at the end of the day, we all really need food, and it takes you back to food and land and and the earth as being the primary holders of value, not really money. Because you can have money, but if there's no food to buy, what will you do with it? Mm -hmm. There's also inspiring openings in people growing food and people thinking about, okay, what are the spaces, large or small, that I have access to, that we as a community have access to, that we can use to grow food. I think there's a quote by, I don't remember by who, but Mm -hmm. something like, when you can grow your own food, no one can tell you anything. And it's been, you know, you can see it in certain movements in the past that they often began with food, political movements. So Mm -hmm. what we know of as as Mau Mau, but really the Kenya Land and Freedom Army, Mm -hmm. or they actually did not call themselves Kenya. I take that back. The (laughs) Land and Freedom Movement, um, (laughs) um, the Black Panthers in the U.S., Uh that food was integral to their politics and to their strategy of how to actually shift power. And it's that critical aspect of if you have, if you control or have sovereignty over food, when you grow your own food, Mm -hmm. you have more freedom than when you're only tied to a food system or the nation state system, the market system, all of this. And then on the other aspect Mm -hmm. of interdependence, I think one of the joys, well, can I actually say that? (laughs) One of the joys of COVID. Wow, that sounds like an oxymoron. Sorry. (laughs) Um, But one of the, yeah, for me, it's been a joy, really. Um, And also see in other people Mm -hmm. uh, a renewed interest in what is actually nourishment, what is nourishing, and people actually beginning to, to look into, oh, okay, garlic is actually really good for your health and you know lemons are good for your health even in those small pockets i think there's hope there in people you know beginning to think about food more critically that it's not just my my stomach needs to be full it's also what nourishment am i getting um, from the food that i'm eating and if the food I'm eating does not have nourishment. This is my hope that the next question would be, if the food I'm eating does not have <laughs> nourishment, let me ask why. Because yeah. food should be nourishing. So if it's not nourishing, there's a problem. Why is that, is that the case? So I hope that, you know, that will be the next step. For millions of people on the continent, food is merely a mechanism for survival. We live hand to mouth and just aim to make it through the day. How can we make this conversation relevant to people whose bellies are hungry? Is it even possible? Or where should we start? I think on the one hand, within the question of how do we make it relevant, mm-hmm. I think it is already relevant. Relevant to the people whose bellies are hungry. Yeah, uh-huh. I think it's already relevant. You mm-hmm. know, I think 
perhaps it's a question of translation perhaps it's a question of language perhaps it's a question of where to go to have certain conversations but fundamentally it is it is relevant i i think we don't need to make it relevant we perhaps need to ask ourselves questions about where we are having certain conversations and and how we can have those conversations to include more people and in what in what languages in what in what idioms are we having these conversations but fundamentally it it is and has always been already relevant and then i would say mm-hmm. both creating mm-hmm. and showing alternative mm-hmm. to the current um lay of the land to you know the system or the reality as it is creating and showing alternatives provides a way for people when for example they begin to find out that actually you know the food that we've been eating as it is produced in a system that does not actually care for the earth or care for people only cares about profit yeah you, when you begin to find out find that out then you ask yourself okay so what can i do what what is different so i think also nurturing the space where we are creating and showing alternatives such that when people find this out they can look towards certain alternatives or they can look towards even if they're not like blue, you know huge alternatives because i don't think we necessarily want to replace the industrial food system with another like globalizing system mm-hmm. i think we need to shift towards local local alternatives if they can look towards certain local alternatives that provides inspiration that provides a sense of agency a sense of hope and then i think fundamentally also mm-hmm. relighting the fire of dignity and sovereignty within people mm-hmm. such that we recognize that you know life as it is in the moment is not all there is to life you know there, there's more that can be created there's more that there can be we can step outside of certain systems that exist to only dehumanize us and to remove dignity from the earth to extract from the earth we can step outside of those but i think for us to be able to step outside of those we have to have regained a sense of dignity that we are human mm-hmm. in as much as the systems we live within um, attempt to dehumanize us as we wind up any key things our listeners can take home from this conversation so one invitation from me would be mm-hmm. to observe ask reflect ask some more <laughs> <laughs> So observe, you know, your world, observe your life, observe what's going on around you, talk to people, ask questions. If you're in the market, I I recently did a thing where one of the invitations from the facilitator um of the food journey was to always remember to honor the source. Ask the people who are around you or who are there in the market, where, where did this come from? Mm-hmm. Who grew this? Where was this, you know? Ask those questions. Ask those questions about yourself also like why don't I eat certain things or why do I eat what I eat? and reflect on what comes back to you as answers or from your observations and ask more questions <laughs> once you've reflected on those so that's one invitation mm-hmm. i think questions are like they open up worlds and fundamentally we are in a period of of history where new worlds are being created 
and we are being invited to create worlds. So asking questions and asking powerful questions can help us with the directions in which we go to to create those new worlds so that those new worlds will not recreate harm and the oppression that you know the current worlds we live in create a second invitation is a question mm-hmm. or a three part question which is all about nourishment and nourishing what nourishes you who nourishes you how are you nourished and how do you nourish yourself and really underlying all of those questions is are you nourished you know yeah. and what is what is nourishing and that one i'll just leave leave it as a question there and then the last invitation would be to begin to begin wherever you are with whoever is around you begin to create aliveness begin to create pockets of aliveness even if it's just growing herbs um in a container even if it's experimenting with i don't know growing that avocado seed that might never sprout begin <laughs> the effort is worth it yeah. and when you create aliveness it draws more aliveness thank you so much wangui I think after this session I'll start thinking about starting my own kitchen garden. Mm, yeah, I've picked so nice. much from yeah, I've really picked so much from you. And thank you as well. Thank you for the invitation. Asante sana. We've reached to an end of another episode of the Chakula podcast. Make sure to visit our website www.trutifood.org where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcast or SoundCloud at Chakula Podcast so you'll never miss a show while you're at it if you find value in this show we'd appreciate a rating and review on Apple Podcast or if you simply tell a friend about the show bye